If you have your Bibles, please open to Ephesians 4. We're going to be reading uh, verses 25 through 32 today. Please stand as we receive God's Word today. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is God's holy word. May we have the ears to hear it, and may his blessing be added to it today. Please have a seat. Has anybody heard of the the website, Eat This, Not That? It's it's such an invaluable tool if you actually do want to eat healthy, because what it does is it helps you navigate those tricky choices, uh, steering you away from bad food options, and giving you good alternatives. It was, it was a godsend over the Thanksgiving weekend uh, because as my wife laid out a giant spread of all these different foods, eat this, not that, told me maybe I shouldn't eat the food that was topped with marshmallow. Uh, maybe the one that had more green beans in it was better. Or you know, white meat turkey is better for you than dark meat. Um, and when it came to the, those of us still sleeping off our desserts here, work, working off those extra pounds, they actually rated, the website rated, all the desserts that you typically eat in Thanksgiving. And at the top of the list, the best option, this, this gives you cause to go home and eat as much of this as you want, is pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie is the best of all, you know, over pecan, over apple, because it has the most nutrients and the most vitamins. What I like about that website, what I like about this approach, is that it's not just telling you, don't eat the bad stuff. It's saying, don't eat the bad stuff, but eat this instead, and here's why. I like to be given an alternative when somebody tells me, don't do this. Instead, do this instead, and here's why. It helps me kind of come to peace with that. And likewise, don't just tell me in the Bible not to sin. Give me an alternative. Give me something to fill that void and explain to me why. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 4. Instead of eat this, not that. He's saying, live this, not that. That's his approach here. Again, we're continuing from last week's theme where Paul was talking about taking our, off our old self of sin and putting on our new identity in Christ. And so now he's giving us four very practical examples, four little slivers of our life where we can live this not that. And we can bring a smile rather than tears to the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that today. The first lifestyle change that Paul tackles is perhaps 
the most pervasive in all our society, which is lying. Lies are everywhere. We, we have false marketing. We have misleading news reports. We tell little white lies in our conversation. We hear somebody tell a really good story, and then we take that and we tell it to other people as if it happened to us. We lie all the time. Sometimes we lie to get out of trouble, or we lie because it gives us an advantage. But it's kind of become this survival technique that a lot of people use in our life. Our society just kind of always assumes everybody lies to a great degree. There was a true story a couple years ago. A 23-year-old man named Dr. Anton Womack was running for a seat on the Birmingham, Alabama Board of Education. And his, his, he had a good platform. Everybody kind of liked what, who this guy was. And he said, well, I got a degree in elementary education from Alabama A&M. I pursued a master's, got a doctorate, you know, a great resume, until a local newspaper started to investigate Dr. Womack and found out that he was actually just 21 years old, that he didn't have a doctorate, he actually never went to college, and he actually never graduated high school. And when the newspaper went and confronted Dr., or no longer Dr., Mr. Womack with this, he outright told them, he said this, my campaign is not based on a foundation of lies. It's just that the information I provided to people was false. That man has a great future in politics right there. I'm just saying. <laughs> the information I provided was false. Paul, Paul doesn't go with that. He says lying has absolutely no place in the church of Christ. We can't let it get a foothold here. And he doesn't just say, hey guys, not lying, that's one of the Ten Commandments, you should know that already. He says, don't lie, but let me give you an alternative. And let me explain why. The alternative he gives is this. Instead of lying, we need to put on the truth. The whole truth. The unvarnished truth. We need to speak truth. We need to live truth. And that is what Paul says upholds the church. It strengthens the church. It makes us so much better. And that, to help us make the switch, he illuminates the fact that us either choosing lies or choosing the truth impact all of us, impact the body. He says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. My words impact, my truth impacts you. But of course, rooting out our lies is not an easy task. It's not a question of whether or not we lie. We all do. But how we lie, where are those lies in our life? How are we presenting ourselves to other people in a way that we shouldn't? Where are those little white lies that we're just more comfortable in, in saying because it gets us around dealing with an uncomfortable situation? We need to evaluate our lives. We need to look coldly, hardly at where the lies are, how we bring them out, and then we need to repent of those. Repenting, not just saying you're sorry, but turning away and putting on the truth. Asking the Spirit, say, Lord, I'm tired of lying. Come into my life and help to encourage me to tell the truth more, to be a truthful person, to be a person that people look to and they say, yes, that person, you can trust them. You can trust them because they're a trustworthy person to put on that truth every day. 
Next, when Paul quotes Psalm 4 and verse 26, he quotes this as a really interesting little bit. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And I encourage you to pause here because we were quickly skipping right past this. It's really interesting that most Christians, when you ask them about anger, will tell you anger is a sin. That is not true. In fact, that's why Paul's quoting it here. In your anger, he says, do not sin. There's a connection between anger and sin, but one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. You see, there's a, there are good types of anger. There are helpful types of anger. There's an anger against sin. We should be angry when we see sin, an offense to God in our lives, in the lives of others, in the lives of the world around us. That should make us upset. We should be mad when we see forms of abuse or injustice. In fact, if we never got upset, never got angry over injustice, what would get Christians off their butt to go do something about it? Anger can lead to good things. In fact, we also see God expressing his anger quite often in the Old and New Testament. I know a lot of you are probably thinking right now, the example I'm going to bring up, which is Jesus in his favorite or his famous fit of anger clearing out the temple because he sees people oppressing the Gentiles and turning his temple, the temple of the Lord, into a mere marketplace. And so he grabs that whip and he gets to work. But note that Jesus' anger here is not a mindless rage. He's not sinning in his rage. Back in Mark 3, 5, a different story, said Jesus looked around at the Pharisees with anger. He had anger as he was watching them grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Jesus held anger in the right spot, and he actually mingled that with grief. He was so upset at the sin he saw that had such a a deep, entrenched uh, root in their lives, and he was angry about it, but he was also tearfully hurt because of it. He was able to handle that in a, a good way. Anger is natural. Sometimes it's a right response when we see something happen in the world and we go, that is just not right. That really gets me upset. Sometimes it's not healthy to repress the anger or ignore it. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, isn't saying never be angry. He says, when you are angry, in those times that you do find anger coming up in your life, you need to resolve that anger as fast as you can so that it doesn't open a doorway in your life to let sin in. Because it's a very short step between getting angry over a situation and bringing sin into the equation. We do that through hurtful words, through physical violence, through letting biases and simmering hatred go on, through wanting to get revenge. I mean, anger leads to a whole host of sins. So Paul is really proposing a very practical solution. He says, put a time limit on your anger. You get angry on a certain day, you fix, you address that anger before you go to sleep that night. He says, it's as simple as that. Don't go to sleep. As the saying goes, if you go to bed angry, you're sleeping with the devil. And he says, don't let that that fester in your mind. Have you ever gone to bed upset over something? And you're tossing, you're turning, you're clenching your teeth. It's just, or maybe it just makes you sick to your stomach. Paul says you could have dealt with that before you went to bed. Give your anger 
a time limit. Figure out what you need to do to resolve it. Maybe you need to talk about it with a person that really upsets you. Sit down with them and say, you know what, you got me really angry. But instead of like getting mad at you and harboring sin against you, I want to talk it out with you. Maybe resolving that anger is just forgiving somebody, giving a situation up to God. You see things on the news report that get you anger, angry? That's good. Chances are most of those things you can't do anything about other than pray. So pray, and then give it up to God and trust that he'll handle the situation. Or maybe you can turn that anger into a positive activity. Several years ago, there was a Knicks-Bullets game, and one of the, the members of the Bullets went up in a particularly horrid little play, he punched the famous Walt Frazier right in the face. And instead of that player getting a foul called on them, Frazier got a foul called on him. He got punched in the face and then got a foul called on him. And everybody was almost, they were holding their breath, waiting to see what Walt would do in response. Because they knew, if I got punched in the face and somebody called a foul on me, man, I'd be right there in the middle of it. But instead... They saw him keep his cool, and he calmly called for the ball, and he, and he sank seven shots in a row to win that game. He channeled his anger into something very productive. And it's a good example for us. Brothers and sisters, we need to do something with our anger because if we have unresolved anger, the Spirit cannot and will not work in the church. We're not leaving it room to do that. We have to deal with that. We have to channel our anger into productivity forgiveness, or peace, or maybe some of all three. So what anger do we have today? What's, what's eating us up inside? What relational anger do we, could we just resolve if we talk with somebody? Let's do that. Let's get rid of it so that we can go to sleep tonight, not sinning and at peace. That's a good thing. Another harmful lifestyle that Paul observed among the church members of his time was rampant stealing. The, the phrasing here, the verbiage that he's using here in, in Ephesians, he's not saying theoretically, maybe some of you guys are taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. He sa- he's using verbs that says, I'm watching you take stuff that doesn't belong to you, and you have absolutely no problem with it. He's watching stealing going on in the church. He says, you Christians are acting no different than the rest of the world. You're just you need a little extra money, you're taking it. You want that food, you're taking it. He says that's got to end. I don't think many of us think of ourselves as thieves, as stealers. And we go, well, I, I don't put on, the, the nighttime doesn't come around and I don't put on a ski mask. I mean, uh, there's some examples down here. They might do that. I put on a ski mask and grab a crowbar and go over to their neighbor's house and engage in a little, you know, light-fingered, thievery there. We, we say we don't do that, but Christians sometimes steal just as much as they did back in Paul's day. There are a lot of ways we do it. We, maybe some people engage in shoplifting. Maybe some people take movies online that, they, that don't belong to them. Maybe some of us go to work, and instead of doing the work that we're being paid for, we're stealing time away from our employer. Some of us borrow things and we just never seem to return them. They become our property. That's theft. Some of us abuse our work expense accounts. Some of us don't properly report on our taxes. Some of us take papers and we scribble out the author's name and we turn it in 
as our own. I did that once in college. Shakespeare class. Hated Shakespeare class. I was an English major. That's, that's heresy, right? You can't be an English major and hate Shakespeare. I did not like Shakespeare. And I was assigned a project to write a report on Twelfth Night. And I did what every college student does when they're given a project they don't want to do. I, I, I procrastinated. I waited till the night before. And then I started sweating bullets because I never read Twelfth Night. I had no paper to write. So I went on the then pretty new internet and I took somebody else's paper and I changed it around a little bit and I turned it in as my own. And the professor knew. They're not dumb. He didn't call me out on it, but I knew he knew. And that ate me because that, well, that was the one time I took somebody else's work and I stole it. And I grieved the Holy Spirit from that. But look how Paul masterfully addresses the th- sin of thievery. He doesn't merely say, don't steal anymore. That's another one of the Ten Commandments. He gives you an alternative option and a motivation for engaging in that option. His alternative is this. He says, instead of stealing, take all that effort you're doing into stealing and work harder. And don't just work for the sake of work, but why? He says this, that they may have something to share with those in need. Thieves, stealers, takers don't tend to have Robin Hood complexes. We don't tend to steal to go, well, I'm just taking that so that I can share it with people. And that makes it okay. We don't do that. We steal for ourselves. Paul says, but when you work and you earn something from that work, you now have an opportunity to share it with those in need, to delight the Holy Spirit, to delight God. And we have a great example of that in first, or 2 Corinthians 8. Paul gives one of the best testimonies of a church I've ever seen. He talks about the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8. He says that this church, he tells us, has been going through a very severe trial. And he uses the words extreme poverty to describe the church. They are poor. They are dirt poor. And then he writes this. Paul says, their overflowing joy welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and then even beyond their ability, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then after that, to us. That is a church full of givers rather than takers. They had every excuse in the world to say, we just can't give, we're too poor. Instead, their hearts were so full of joy in the Lord, they said, Please let us give. Let us give and let us give. We just want to give for God. That's an example of how we can live today. Finally, imagine you are watching a TV commercial, brand new beverage that the Coca-Cola company is, is sponsoring. And the spokesperson comes on and he gleefully describes, he says, this drink is the most rotten, putrid, and filthy thing that will ever pass your lips. Drink it up, because the more you drink, the more it will poison your body and make you completely sick to your stomach. Go out today and buy a 24 case. There is no way we would hear that and rush out 
to buy raw sewage and gulp it down. But these are the words that Paul describes as some of the speech that is coming out of the mouths of Christians rather than going in. Putrid, rotten, corrupting, disgusting. He knows so well that what we say has a great impact on the relationships in our lives, on how people see us and how we make people feel. And he says, sin infects both people on both ends of a filth-ridden conversation. But we ask ourselves, well, what kind of speech is that? What is rotten talk? Well, rotten talk is the kind of talk that puts ourselves first, that pushes somebody else down so that we can look better. Maybe it's the kind of speech that tears into somebody when they're not in the room. Or it's the kind of words from somebody who's always complaining, always bitter, always gossiping. It seems like every workplace has at least one person like that. And strangely enough, those people end up, everybody avoids them like they're actually infected with something. They are. They're infected with filth. And they're spewing it to anybody who comes within earshot. But if we're not to talk like that, if we're not to have rotten talk, a talk, a mouthful of curses, then how are we to talk? Well, Paul tells us the, again the alternative and the motivation. He says, we should say only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I want you to for, once and for all forget the playground saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. That is a lie. Words have power. They have power to hurt. They have power to heal. They have power to help. And Paul says, you can be using your words for God in a way that builds people up, a way that benefits them, a way that glorifies God. And we see that throughout the whole Bible. He posits this, this idea before us. He says, what if the church was known as a place where everybody there, anything they said was always encouraging and always uplifting. Look at Job 4, when one of his friends says, Job, you know what about you? Your words always uphold those who are stumbling, helping those who have feeble needs to lock their legs straight. He says, your words bolster people. That's such an incredible thing about you, Job. Or what about Colossians 4 that says, when we talk, our words should always be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's a good thing to season with salt. Or Proverbs 12 that counsels, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your tongue can bring healing. Your tongue can be gracious. It can be seen as a benefit. Think of when somebody said something encouraging to you. Something where it just it made your day. They might have not even been thinking about it. but They just gave you a compliment or they gave you an encouragement, or they, they encouraged you in the Lord, and suddenly you felt like the rest of your day, you're just smiling and you didn't know why. You just felt like a million bucks. The power of words. Paul says, you have that same power to encourage and support others. Go from spewing curses to breathing blessings. Now, these are just four examples. It's not the be-all, end-all of Christian living. These are four great examples of how we can take off the old life and put on the new. How we can live this, not that. And I love that Paul gives us alternatives 
and reasons. And he asks us to consider what a Christ-transformed person looks like in the end. That it's a person who has built a reputation as trustworthy and honest. It's a person who is never like raging and has anger that's out of control, but their anger is controlled, is channeled, and it is dealt with. A person who is generous to a fault and then beyond a fault. A person whose almost every word they say benefits other people, benefits anybody who's within earshot. Says so that's a Christ-transformed person. That's a person that can look at themselves in the mirror at the beginning of the day and not feel shame and regret. That's a person that I want to be, that you should want to be. And Paul is leading us down that road. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to live the way of Christ, not the way of sin. Thank you for this wor- these words of advice here in Ephesians 4 that give us very practical, very useful ways, Lord, of implementing this. And help it just to be a jumping off point for us to be looking critically at different spots in our life and saying, Lord, how can we take off the sin that offends you and put on the Christ-like living that brings you joy and delight, that makes you proud of us, Lord. Lord, we're not perfect. You know that. And yet you haven't given up on us. You're giving us your word to advise us. You're giving us your word to counsel us and and guide us to the right way. But Lord, we also need your spirit and your strength to overcome temptation, to make better choices, to look at how what we do and what we say and how we act how it all affects other people, how it affects the body of Christ. To live beyond ourselves, to live for others, to live for you. Lord, it it always comes down to love in the end. And we want to be loving people. Help us to love, Lord. In your name, amen.